0: So today we're continuing in our sermon series that has a three-part title, Grace and Gratitude and Generosity. And We're going to be preaching on these topics going all the way up to Thanksgiving, which seems especially appropriate. So do you remember how Steve Shepstead started his sermon last week? He started with a question the question was, basically, is there any one thing you can do or a practice you can take up or a habit you can give up? Is there anything you can do that would make you more pleasing to God or would make God love you more? And I could just see the wheel spinning in everybody's head, including my own. What was the answer? Say it loud. No. Nothing. That was the point. Now, to, you know. Be clear, there are plenty of things you can do and not do that are more or less pleasing to God, but there is absolutely nothing you can do to make yourself more lovable or more pleasing to God. Because the God who created you, the God who, as the Psalms say, made human beings the crown of creation That God, as uh, the writer G.K. Chesterton put it, that God already loves you and me furiously, furiously. That's the core message of the Christian faith. Now, it's clear that it's, you know, it's, it's not easy to get that sometimes. And I've been talking to some of you these last few weeks and some of this idea of grace doesn't really click. It's not exactly obvious to us. And I think part of the problem why it's not always clear to us, is that we human beings already have a hard enough time receiving the love of God and returning the love of God for some reason. And so that's what I want to talk about today. Basically, the point of today's sermon is, why do we need grace in the first place? So let's turn to our text today, which comes from Ephesians 2, verses one through seven. Now last week, Steve preached on Ephesians 2, eight and nine. I'm giving the background for those and he's gonna continue it next week. Paul writes this, listen now for God's word to you today. You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, dead. Following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us, all of us lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath, like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead through our trespasses, even when we were dead to our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let's pray. Holy God, we pray that you will grant us the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the hearts and minds to understand your word and your world as best we can this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Maybe you can see why Steve chose the uh, verses 8 and 9 to preach on last week. Because before we get to all the good stuff about grace, Paul writes this. You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived. Dead. He's not talking about physical death. He's talking about a spiritual lifelessness that makes you Not do the things you should be doing and uh, do the things you shouldn't be doing. And then he says what it is like to walk around dead, as as he puts it. That is, to be a spiritual zombie. It's shuffling around like a slave to your hungers and being manipulated, he says, by the ruler of the power of the air. Now, the ruler of the power of the air is a way of talking about the devil, who in the ancient view of the cosmos, of the world and the universe, the devil and his demons were up in the sort of middle range of the sky between us and heaven, fighting a spiritual battle constantly with God and his angels. Now, of course, that idea doesn't fly quite as well with us today with our modern sensibilities, even if it is absolutely true that the power of evil is absolutely real in this world and in our hearts too. Now, let's leave the devil behind for now. I know it's tempting to stay with the devil here, but let's move on to zombies. Okay, that's a great topic, especially now, right? Halloween's coming up and, you know, I, I got to see, I was telling Michael Barber earlier today, our, our communications guy, got to see one of my favorite movies of all time, probably in my top 10. And that is a movie called Shaun of the Dead. Has, have any of you ever seen Shaun of the Dead? Raise your hands. Okay, it's gory, it's gory, I'll grant you that. It's a zombie movie, right? What do you expect? But it's also one of the funniest films I've ever seen in my life. So, anyway, I watched Shaun of the Dead, but today, alas, I'm not going to talk about that kind of zombie. I'm going to talk about being a spiritual zombie, the kind of thing Paul's talking about. So um, zombies, spiritual zombies, walk around, as Paul says, aimlessly, um, and they suffer from, or we suffer from, a condition that in theological terms, in biblical terms, we use the word, sin to describe that condition of being spiritual zombies. Now, somebody once said that sin is something that somebody else does that you don't feel comfortable about. (laughs) There's a lot of truth to that, right? But the basic religious or theological Christian understanding of sin is to harm God or indirectly to harm God by harming somebody else somebody that God loves. And since God loves everybody, you're harming God when you harm somebody else. Now in New Testament Greek, the word for sin is hamartia. You may have heard that word before. It comes from, it's an archery concept. It comes from archery, shooting an arrow. Hamartia in Greek basically means a failure to hit the target, failure to hit the mark, like the archer missing a target. It's going astray, astray from what? Well, the way Paul is looking at it and the way he understood it, going astray is going astray from the Jewish law, the 613 rules in the Torah and all the other rules that aren't even written in the Torah, the way the rabbis would tell you, you're supposed to do this, you're not supposed to do this. Um, And the Talmud, which comes a little bit later in the history of Judaism after Jesus' time, but it's very, very early. is a list of uh, commentaries on, on the Old Testament, which Jews to this day, they preach on the Talmud almost more than they preach on the Torah and the Bible. Anyway, the Talmud says that everyone, everyone is responsible to be as great as Moses. That is the one who gave us the law to begin with. But at the same time, the Bible is realistic about this. In Deuteronomy it says, no one will ever be as great as Moses. And that poses a dilemma, right? Great as Moses, but you can't be as great as Moses. So in Paul's view, to be in a right relationship with God, you have to follow all the rules. But at the same time, it's impossible. Hmm. So that condition, we're supposed to be like this close to God, but we're not? word we can use for that is alienation. We're alienated from God, and that places a heavy burden on our shoulders. In fact, in, um, in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, one of the most common words, common ways that sin is talked about is as a heavy burden on our shoulders, weighs us down. And that's why the Old Testament is full of prescriptions and rituals for how to repent, how to atone, how to come back in relationship with God, how to lift the weight of sin from our shoulders. But here's the thing. It's the theological knot, or one of many theological knots, but it's the main theological knot that Paul is trying to untie in his letters. How do you get this burden of sin removed from you if you're not Jewish? that is you can't even follow the law let alone not even be not be able to follow every little thing you don't even know what the law is and you have no access to those rituals of repentance and atonement I just talked about how does God save or how is a Gentile non-Jew supposed to get saved because it is clear to him that God's act of salvation in Jesus Christ is for everyone in the whole world not just Jews. So Paul comes up with this idea of grace as God's way to release us from being spiritual zombies. There's nothing we can do to make it happen. It is God's work alone. That's the core idea. And you can get a sense of it. There's this old short silent film, and I I saw it years ago. I think it's Charlie Chaplin, it could have been Buster Keaton, I don't remember, but the silent film and there's this convict and he is is being taken to prison on a ship and there's a shipwreck and so the guy winds up in the beach and he's got this, um, this wrap around his leg that ties him to a ball and chain. And so what is he gonna do to escape, to be free from that ball and chain? So first, since it's a comedy, He tries humor he laughs at the ball and chain he smiles at it he talks to it it's a silent film you don't know what he's saying so he he's it wouldn't it be nice if you could talk to anyway it's a silent film so he makes these little jokes to the ball and chain and he gets up he walks off and he immediately falls flat on his face in the sand so then he thinks ah i will try reason So he speaks rationally and seriously to the ball and chain and he thinks he's won it over by rational arguments and he gets up, walks off, and boom, flat on his face again. And then he does this, he pretends that the ball and chain isn't there. He kicks sand over it, he hides it and he sits there and he doesn't see a ball and chain anymore. He convinces himself that it's not there. So he gets up, walks away and boom, he goes down again. And at this point, the insight starts to dawn on him that he can't solve this problem on his own. He needs help from the outside, somebody with a key. And so in the last scene of the film, the convict is looking up in the sky in hope of release. That's kind of how Paul sees the problem of sin. We all have it, every single one of us. We're all sinners, maybe not all the time, but we can't escape from the sins that we do commit. And we're, 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 we're guided by that nature that we seem to carry with us as human beings all the time. We can't help ourselves, that's why we need grace. But even so, as I know as well as anybody else, it is still hard to wrap our heads sometimes around this idea of God's unmerited gift to us in grace. Partly because, honestly, the church has sold a very warped understanding of what sin is for generations, centuries. I was sold it. Maybe you were too. I mean, aside from the idea that an angry God has you dangling over the fiery pit of hell like a spider on the end of a thread, unless you accept Jesus, there's this really weird idea that once you do accept Jesus, once you're saved, once you're born again, that somehow, by some magic, you're not a sinner, and everybody else still is. You ever heard that before? I sure have. I was a sucker for that idea at one point in my life believe it or not thank god it was a short period of my life none of that is biblical none of that it's it's an interpretation of the bible but it's not what the bible says and it's not what most of our christian history says if you really look at it but that's what's been sold but none of it does any justice to the god that is revealed to us in jesus christ the God who loves you and me so much and everybody else that he's gonna do anything he can to set us free and lift the burden. But still, and this is important, that absolutely does not mean that sin is not a big deal. It is. In a sermon, um, Nadia Boltz-Weber, she's a a Lutheran preacher in uh, Denver, (laughs) she's known as being really, really liberal, too. She gets flack from that all the time. But she wrote this about being set free or being set loose. She writes, There is loosing to be done in this world. We are bound by our failures and missteps and the words we said in our worst moments. They form bars in our spiritual prison cells. We need to be loosed, set free, released. Loosed from that which weighs us down, our sin, our shame, our despair. Loosed from our pride, our anger, our resentment, and guilt for not being able to live up to even our own values. I think she's totally right. There's loosing to be done in this world. I mean, if the truth is that we human beings need ourselves to seek and receive and offer forgiveness to each other, why would it be any different in our relationship with God? Remember a couple of weeks ago, Steve preached on the parable of the lost sheep, right? The parable of the lost sheep from the 15th chapter of Luke. you get that story, then you get another parable, and then the chapter of chapter 15 in Luke ends with another really, really well known parable. We all have heard it, I think, or I'm sure. Well, I'm not sure, but I hope so. It's the parable of the prodigal son. He's the guy who demands that his father give him now his whole inheritance while his dad is still alive. And then he goes off to the far country to, you know, walk on the wild side for a while. And, and he, he spends all his money. He's profligate. He just gives it all away and does all these bad things. And he winds up destitute, dressed in rags, sitting in a pigsty. Now, to a Jewish audience, if somebody's sitting in a pigsty, that is the lowest place you can possibly be. And then he thinks... I need help I need to go home I need to apologize and ask dad to accept me back into the family and so he goes and if you remember the story his father is kind of remarkable his father runs towards this son who's been such a a, a sinner such a bad dude he even treated his own dad as dead he runs to him and embraces him even before the son can say anything to his father he wraps his cloak around him and he calls his servants to kill the fatted calf because there's going to be a big party for this son of mine was dead and is alive again he was lost and now is found now that's a that's a metaphor for how grace can work and god welcomes anyone no matter what you've done or who you are and A message like that, I think we'd all agree, that can be an incredibly powerful idea to somebody who who already knows they're at rock bottom. They're in a pigsty. They're walking around like a zombie. God's going to take you back no matter what. That's amazing. I might take God up on that deal. But you know, there's another character in the story, aside from the son and his dad. Who's that? His brother, his older brother, how does he see his father's response to his sinful sibling? He doesn't take it well. He is outraged. It's not fair. The father's love and grace and worst of all, his affection, his joy, is lavished on a guy who hasn't done a damn thing to deserve it. And that anger and resentment, you know what it does? It puts a heavy weight on that elder brother's shoulder, weighs him down, and it breaks his relationship between himself and the father, who as the parable also tells us, loves the elder son just as much as he loves the younger son. So using that as a metaphor for our own relationship with the God Jesus calls his own father, we can now, I think, think, define sin more clearly. Sin is whatever it is that keeps you from experiencing the boundless, astounding, self-giving, transforming love of God and from having the abundant life that God created you to enjoy. That's what sin is. Now, does receiving grace always lead to abundance and joy? No, of course not. Even the the best Christians, if there's ever such a thing, we all still suffer from alienation and sin. But we do get this message that despite that, or because of that, God will do whatever it takes to win us back and set us free. As Eugene O'Neill, the poet wrote, man is born broken, he lives by mending, and the grace of God is the glue. Doesn't mean it's easy to understand. I've said that now three times. It's not easy to understand. For example, uh, somebody said to me the other day, uh, isn't it true that as Americans we are taught all the time that there's no free lunch? Um, I I almost want to ask if there's anybody who's never heard that term before, but we've all heard that term before. There's no free lunch, there's always strings attached. If that's true with us, why isn't that true with God? Or if God already loves everybody no matter what, why would anybody ever bother being good? Pretty clear. And then there's this. If you're already being good, as good as possible, like the elder brother in the parable, then showering grace on just anybody, like that scummy brother he has, that's unfair. That's wasteful. It doesn't seem just. But you know, even if all of these are perfectly reasonable objections to the idea of grace, they all miss a key point, and it's this they all see the cost of god's grace as cheap cheap didn't cost anything but wait a second pastor or preacher didn't you just tell us that grace is free yes i did tell you that but it's free to you and me not to god A few weeks ago, I mentioned Dietrich Bonhoeffer's great book, Life Together, when we were introducing our, our new life groups here, these small groups that are meeting on a weekly basis here at church. And man, these have been fantastic. I'm really enjoying it so much. But anyway, in, he wrote another book called The Cost of Discipleship. And in that book, he makes a, very, a pretty well-known distinction between what he calls cheap grace and costly grace. Cheap grace is taking God's mercy for granted. It's thinking, awesome, God gave me this amazing, unmerited gift Christians call grace, so I'll just sit back, relax, and enjoy it, and I don't have to do anything. And it's true, that's part, <clears throat> that's part of what makes the good news good, but the gospel is also a story of the heavy-duty cost that God pays to set us free from sin. Because while love is the divine essence, the God we see in Jesus is also just. You hear that God is just all the time in the Old Testament. That's where we get, by the way, the concept of a God of wrath or children of wrath. Wrath doesn't mean God's angry. It means that God is simply just and holds us human beings to account for what we do and what we don't do. It's not us. It's the stuff we do that makes God angry. So if God is constantly acting in self-giving love to put us back into a right relationship, that's, that's what God is loving, God is just, and constantly trying to put us back in relationship, which is to say, that's why Jesus, if you pay attention to all the stories in the gospel, Jesus goes around forgiving people all the time. Jesus forgives people all the time. And he heals them from illnesses. Some of those illnesses are psychological, we would say today. And then he releases them from demons, which we can think of that in lots of ways too. And as you and I know, the act of forgiveness if it's real, always involves a cost to the person who's doing the forgiving. Even among us human beings. To enable someone else to come back into relationship with us, we have to give something up. We give up, that's where we get the word forgive. We give up, we forgive our own right to revenge. Our own right to our pound of flesh, however you want to put it. That's what forgiveness is. And by analogy, it's the same with God. You know the old adage that justice is getting what you deserve, mercy is not getting what you deserve, and grace is getting what you don't deserve. So how does God combine justice and love and mercy giving us grace. Any ideas? It's the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's how it happens. When we recognize what it's about, Bonhoeffer says, we can enter into an authentic life of discipleship in response to God's costly grace. Now, I've already given you a lot of uh, theology today, so I'll go a little light on it now. But there are so many ways to understand what happens on the cross and in, on Easter and even the d- in the day in between, Holy Saturday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. There's lots and lots of different ways to understand what that means, how God wins us back, atones, brings us back into alignment in Jesus Christ, you know, he paid a debt or Jesus paid a debt that we owe on the cross, or he set us free from captivity to sin and the powers of evil, or he, he opens up a way uh, like opening up the Red Sea with Moses he, by going down into the waters, into death himself and coming out the other side. And if we follow him, we enter into new life too. There's lots of different ways to understand atonement. The point is that on the cross, God gave everything, even life itself, to give us new life in this world and in the next. That's grace. Faith is trusting that it's true. And living as much as you can by the power of the Spirit, living by the same self-giving love of Jesus. You know, last week, somebody in my uh, life group, my small group here at the church, responded to this idea of costly grace and I thought, a really good way. He said, it's like your best buddy dying, dying for you. I don't know, on a battlefield or, I don't know, standing in front of uh, something that was going to hurt you, and that person dies for you. Wouldn't you wanna honor his life by doing everything you could possibly do to take care of the family that he left behind? It's a great way of looking at grace and the response that we have in faith. And next week, Steve Shipstead's gonna talk more about what that's like, but I wanna close with one last, real short illustration of grace. It comes from, of all places, an old Dennis the Menace cartoon and in it Dennis is shown with his pal Joey and they're leaving Mrs. Wilson's house with a whole bunch of cookies and Joey says I wonder what we did to deserve this and Dennis answers look Joey Mrs. Wilson gives us cookies not because we're nice but because she's nice and that's grace And when you receive it from the hand of God, the taste can be incredibly sweet. In Jesus' name, amen.